Chapter Six of Phillips Brooks by Mark Antony De Wolf Howe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The personality of Phillips Brooks displayed itself in many ways outside of the pulpit. The qualities of the preacher, to be sure, were those which most clearly distinguished him from men in general but it would be entirely unfair to ignore the other qualities through which he expressed his nature. How preeminently he preferred to think of himself as the preacher rather than the writer or speaker or anything else may be inferred from this suggestion to theological students. I think that it is good for every minister to write something besides sermons, books, articles, essays, at least letters, provided he has control of himself and still remains the preacher and does not become an amateur in literature instead. His own control of himself in this direction was most rigid. On one occasion, of which the present writer happens to know, a Christmas carol which Mr. Brooks wrote for his Sunday school was secured for publication in a secular periodical for the young. The publishers could do nothing less than to send him a liberal check for the few stanzas, asking that it might be applied to the purposes of the Sunday school. But the check came promptly back with thanks and so courteously firm a note that the incident was closed. Mr. Brooks was evidently not to be enticed into forgetting for an instant that he was a minister and not a minor poet and thus in all the varied functions of his life he was consistently himself. To the complaint that he lacked the administrative faculties needed by the modern city clergyman, there was always a sufficient reply in the mere existence of St. Andrew's Chapel, established by Trinity Church, of the Trinity House, the Trinity Club, the Industrial and Employment Societies of the Parish, the flourishing Sunday school, and many other expressions of parochial activity. If there was one thing which he especially resented at the later time when all his motives and actions were vigorously scrutinized, it was the charge that his executive ability was weak. It is true the details of parish management were often committed to other hands, but the very best of administrators frequently are those who best know how to utilize the abilities of others. A part of the wisdom Mr. Brooks displayed in administering his parish lay in expending his own force where it could do most good, in the pulpit, and in placing much of the other work precisely where it could best be performed. The parish itself found no fault with his methods. The state of feeling constantly existing between him and them was indeed well indicated, so far as outward things reveal inward, by the attempt upon one occasion to make the rector's salary larger, and by his absolute refusal to listen to any such proposition. It was for many activities besides preaching, however, that his energies were reserved. His accessibility to all comers at all hours was so well known as to bring down upon him many devastators of the day. 
when he became a bishop and was urged to adopt office hours in order to shield himself from innumerable visitors he exclaimed god save the day when they won't come to me and held his time no less at the disposal of every one who might ask for it with his correspondence the same principle was pursued no matter how trivial the letters which poured in upon him day by day he made himself accountable for answers to them all his own handwriting was uncommonly clear and one is not sorry to hear that the righteous indignation of which he was thoroughly capable sometimes showed itself when illegible letters came to him what right has that man to save his time in writing badly and steal mine and again to quote from bishop lawrence's report of his predecessor's words what a bit of self-conceit on the part of that student that he should think that what he writes is worth my while to decipher yet the probability is that the ill-written words were not only deciphered but considerately answered if the offending student was an undergraduate at harvard phillips brooks could have been nothing but lenient to him the college for many years was practically his second parish in its hold upon his affections it probably stood second to no institution of whatever sort all the force of hereditary and youthful homage bound it closely to him and the college in turn bound him to itself by its pride in everything he did for it from offering the prayer at the commemoration service to delivering the sermon at the two hundred and fiftieth anniversary and becoming one of its university preachers there was undoubtedly a reason stronger than that of mere association for this interest of phillips brooks in harvard college bishop lawrence has told us of one great overhanging disappointment which weighed upon him in some of his darker moments and which drove him to some of his most desperate work the disappointment was that with some exceptions the best and strongest manhood did not come into the fullness of communion with jesus christ to one who believed with the intensity of phillips brooks both in man and in god the realization of this fact must indeed have brought moments of bitterness but it is evident that with them must have come the determination to reach the men in whom he believed and to do it before they had come to years of inflexibility harvard college his own alma mater was at his very doors crowded with the youth who year after year were stepping out into the foremost ranks of american manhood it was an opportunity from which phillips brooks would have been the last to turn away even if the college had ever shown the slightest disposition to let him do so in eighteen seventy only one year after mr brooks came to boston from philadelphia he was made an overseer of the college and in later years broken only by the intervals prescribed by law was twice re-elected president elliot has made public record of his support of all changes in the college regulations which should enlarge the freedom of the students simplify their living and develop their capacity for self-control 
When the appointment of instructors came before the board, Mr. Brooks never raised questions of the religious, political, or philosophical views of the applicant, but feared the effect of a pessimistic or cynical temper, and tried to protect the college from its baleful influence. Three times, in the agitation in favor of voluntary chapel, he voted against abandoning the old compulsory system. But in the end, his vote was cast in favor of the present method. In the existing state of college opinion on the subject, he declared, I can no longer have anything to do with compulsory prayers. In 1877, the college bestowed upon him the degree of S.T.D., and Mr. Brooks, who heard the news of it in Europe, wrote home to his mother, I am very sensible of the honor, but hope people will not begin to call me by the title. Nor did they, nor even after the dignity of doctor was elevated to that of bishop, was it possible for those who really knew him to stop thinking and usually speaking of him simply as Mr. Brooks? It was in 1881 that the title of Professor Brooks was offered to him, and, as the offer came from Harvard College and held out not only the plumber professorship of Christian morals, but also the post of preacher to the university, it was not a proposition to be carelessly dismissed. After a few days of consideration, Mr. Brooks came to President Elliot to ask if the corporation fully understood that he was a Trinitarian. The President told him that the question was not one of creed, the college wanted him no matter what his beliefs might be. After a week of further consideration, he came again to the president and told him he could not accept the offer. But in the words of President Elliot, he was very pale and grave, and he spoke like a man who had seen a beatific vision which he could not pursue. Before we parted, he had assured me that he would do everything in his power, short of leaving Trinity Church and Boston, to further the religious work of the university. That promise he amply redeemed. Well skilled in reporting the gifts of the sons of Harvard to their mother, President Eliot has further declared of Phillips Brooks, he was one of the greatest benefactors the university has ever had, for he gave himself, his time, thought, and love, his burning words and his convincing example of purity, uprightness, and manly piety. The fullness of this giving was not attained until the present system of administering the religious affairs of the college was adopted in 1886. Under this system, five clergymen of different denominations divide the year into portions, during which each university preacher in turn takes up his residence in the college yard, conducts the voluntary chapel service every morning of the week, and usually on every Thursday afternoon and Sunday evening. Besides all this, he holds himself in readiness for certain hours each day to see any students who may wish to call upon him in his rooms at Wadsworth House. 
This was a work into which Phillips Brooks could not have failed to enter with zeal, and all his beliefs about the willingness of men to respond to the best teaching of spiritual truth were borne out by the eagerness with which the students thronged to hear and see him. Appleton Chapel, at quarter before nine o'clock in the morning, has never been overcrowded, I believe, since the compulsory prayers were abandoned. But on the mornings when Phillips Brooks conducted the service, it was far more nearly in that condition than at any other morning services of the year. On Thursday afternoons and Sunday nights, when he preached, the place was sure to be crowded to the doors. If the students liked it, so did he, and in a note to his fellow preacher, Dr. Edward Everett Hale, he wrote, After all, the true Christian church is Appleton Chapel. Of his more personal intercourse with the undergraduates whom he saw at Wadsworth House, still another of his fellow preachers has written, They came to him, as has been said to me more than once, afraid of his greatness, and they went away remembering only his kindness. The memories of these private interviews are now the individual possession of many men who would forget many things they learned at Cambridge more willingly than the words and spirit of the kind great man who treated them as his equals. A story told in public by our present ambassador to Great Britain gives evidence that no shadow of superiority to the undergraduates was assumed even at the times when they must have been vividly aware of its existence. According to the anecdote, whether true or well found, Mr. Brooks unwittingly walked in one morning upon a company of young fellows huddling over a dying fire and miserably recovering from a night of dissipation. He gave them a friendly greeting, and sat down for a few minutes' talk, in which no word of censure or rebuke found a place. Then he rose to go, and, putting his hand kindly on the head of the young man whom he knew as the leading spirit, said, "'Well, boys, it doesn't make you feel any better, does it?' No sermon that he ever preached could have been better adapted to its end than these words. The remembrance of all his words so stirred the hearts of the men of Harvard that immediately upon his death measures were taken for the building of the commodious Phillips Brooks House, now just completed and meant to stand for all time within the college yard as a memorial of the preacher and the center of all religious work for and by the students of the university. The desire of Mr. Brooks to reach the men of his time revealed itself in many utterances outside of his own parish and the Harvard community. Historical, civic, and literary occasions of many sorts called upon him as a speaker, and always he made himself felt primarily as a man among men. Nowhere could this impression of him have been more clear than at the monthly meetings of the Loyal Legion, which he attended regularly for many years. To see him and all the officers standing and repeating the Lord's Prayer together was worth a month of trouble. 
so wrote one of the bravest of massachusetts soldiers and the picture of the man of peace praying with the men of warfare to whom his whole heart had gone out through the death-dealing years they had survived is one of the images which the younger generation will do best to preserve in all its clearness of outline and suggestion. End of chapter 6